Thank you for joining the conversation. I'm Randy Gue, Assistant Director of Collection Development and the Curator of Political, Cultural, and Social Movement Collections at Emory University's Stuart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library. And you're listening to the new podcast series, Rose Library Presents Atlanta Intersections. Atlanta Intersections explores how lives and places are bound together in the city we call home. Today I'm talking to Walter Brown Reeves, an Atlanta writer, researcher, published poet, and proud member of the Teamsters about Neighbors Network, a local community-based organization dedicated to countering hate crimes and hate group activity in Atlanta, Georgia during the 1980s and 1990s. The Rose Library is proud to be the repository of the records of Neighbors Network. Walter, welcome to Atlanta Intersections. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate the opportunity. We're going to start out by me asking you the question that I ask everybody. So, uh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from right here in Georgia. My family goes back into the state to back before it was a state, back before it was a colony, as a matter of fact. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm from right here in little old Georgia. I was actually born in 1956 in a little place down in middle Georgia called Dublin. And it's a little old town that's about halfway between Macon and Savannah. It's pretty much the only place in between Macon and Savannah on the highway. Uh, And I was born there in 1956, but my family moved to Atlanta in 1957 because I turned two in Atlanta in 1958, and I have some early memories of that. So, uh, yeah, I I guess I'm about as close to being a native-born Atlantan as you can get without actually being born here. What part of town did you grow up in? My father was a... um, the son of a textile mill worker, but he wasn't just a, a line mill worker. He was a, a tool and die man. He actually made parts, spare parts for the uh, looms at the mill. So he was a little bit higher in terms of pay. He was considered skilled worker. And uh, my daddy uh, was the first person in his family to go to college. So he actually was very much a striving, upwardly uh, mobile person. When we moved to Atlanta, he had been promoted to acting manager of the local J.I. Case plant, uh, company here in Georgia, or in Atlanta, I should say. And they, they manufactured farm equipment. Uh, a lot of people won't know that now. My daddy had been selling tractors and occasionally repossessing them all over the state before he got this promotion. And when we moved to Atlanta, he bought a house in the Morningside Lenox Park area of Atlanta, uh, at that time, for $25,000, if you can imagine that, on a 20-year mortgage, sitting on top of the highest hill he could find because my mother loved the mountains, and this was the closest thing to a mountaintop house that he could find in Atlanta, so he bought it for her. And I was very fortunate in that I was able to grow up in this area of town because it was, for the time, quite a mixed and even cosmopolitan place to live. Uh, in that, in addition to the usual Southern Baptist Church, United Methodist Church, and Presbyterian Church, we also had three synagogues in the neighborhood. So from a very early age, I was privileged to know that there was more than one face to the world, so to speak. You're from Dublin. You grew up here in Atlanta. How did you end up doing what we uh, used to call anti-Klan work? Well, you know, that's that's a complicated story. Um because it really goes back to my childhood here in Atlanta. I became aware 
of racism at a very, very early age. So early that there was never any doubt in my mind that it was wrong. You know, it wasn't complicated by, you know, years of being acculturated into it. Uh, partly, you know, because it was all around me. Partly because it was in the middle of Dr. King's ministry when he was leading the civil rights movement. It was hard to ignore. These were all key things. I mean, if I'd been born a generation earlier, I might not have realized as early as I did that racism was a thing. Um, of course, the fact that most of my classmates and friends uh, growing up were Jewish, and this was post-World War II, that had a profound effect, too. And I realized that coming from a very big, sprawling, extended Southern family, to realize that my friends and classmates didn't have that, and the reason why they didn't have that was pretty profound. And from there, to look around me and to see the reality of Jim Crow, even as a small child, it wasn't difficult to make the connections. And consequently, from the earliest time that I remember learning what racism was, I knew it was wrong. And I had before me the examples of the civil rights movement and the people in that struggle for freedom. I always felt called upon to do something, except as a child, there wasn't a very great deal that I could do. Then uh, in the mid-80s, I was down in Florida helping my father with his business down there. I began to come across white supremacist and neo-Nazi propaganda being distributed in the area down there. Oh, and I should say that before I went down to Florida, this was in the late 70s, uh, in uh, 1979, there had been a massacre in Greensboro, North Carolina, where a combination of Klan and neo-Nazis had attacked uh, some anti-Klan demonstrators, which included some members of a thing called the Communist Workers' Party, and they murdered five or six of the people in the streets, and then they got off at a jury trial, ostensibly because they were acting in self-defense, um, and I was astounded by that. I, I couldn't believe it, because it was quite obviously not self-defense, and the only reason I could see for why they were let off was because the people they were attacking were communists. That disturbed me deeply. And in fact, I went and participated in protests over that. But after that, shortly after that, I went down to Florida to help my father with his business. And that's when I became aware of just how poisonous this stuff was and how much of it was still out there. You know, being growing up in Atlanta, I had been kind of insulated. It was possible up until the 1980s, even, to sort of think that everything was progressing because things in Atlanta were progressing. Uh, but when I got down to South Florida, it became quite obvious that they weren't. Then when I got back to Atlanta in the uh, mid-80s, that's when I got a real shock because I came back and found that the Klan was resurgent, the Klan violence was on the uptick outside of the city, and in addition, there was this new phenomenon of the Nazi skinhead movement that was developing within the city, and they were attacking people, intimidating people. Uh, there was a benefit held in Atlanta uh, at the Paul Robeson Theater where they were trying to raise money for a daycare center, build a daycare center in Nicaragua, and it was attacked by a gang of Nazi skinheads. And uh, one of the people who was there who was attacked barely escaped with his life. They also assaulted uh, a club owner uh, who, you know, 
ran a club dedicated to the uh, youth audience in Atlanta. Uh, and they were just engaging in violence and intimidation all over the place. So it was, it was quite obvious that something needed to be done about it. And I, I cast about a bit uh, looking for where I could be of most use. And that was when I became aware of the work that the Center for Democratic Renewal was doing. And what they were doing was researching and counter-organizing against Klan activity. And I realized that as a native Georgian whose family was mostly from the country, I was the first generation of my family to grow up in the city, that I was in a position where I could probably be very effective at infiltrating and collecting intelligence about what these groups were doing. So I went and I volunteered, and I spent about a year and a half, two years doing infiltration and uh, basically spying for them, and I learned a great deal during that time. After that time, much to my chagrin, I discovered that they were no longer really doing any organizing, any counter-organizing to the Klan, and it had always been my plan to move from uh, infiltration work to counter-organizing and uh, come to find out they weren't doing it anymore. So when some other folks who had previously worked with the CDR, as well as their community, the CDR's community liaison person, Janet Caldwell, approached me about the possibility of doing local organizing as an independent, though affiliated group, I thought that was a fine idea. So basically a half dozen of us sat down around the kitchen table one day and hammered out a plan of action and began to do our work as Neighbors Network. And that carried on for the better part of a decade with a certain amount of success, I think. Um, the fact that we're doing this interview indicates that there was a certain amount of success. People are still interested in what we did. And I don't want to take all the credit for it. We, we worked with groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, the CDR, and the ADL even, you know, in order to counter the effects of the Nazi skinheads and the Ku Klux Klan. Before Neighbors Network was founded, you actually infiltrated the Klan in that you went to rallies and meetings. And you mentioned in Florida, you ran into kind of this, the Klan was resurgent, but you also ran into this neo-Nazi thing. When you were um, infiltrating the rallies, did you see both sides of that coin or what, what did you see? Well, when I first started infiltrating the Klan rallies and Klan gatherings, it was not so overt. The connection was not so overt. But there was already a neo-Nazi element in the Klan at that time. You basically had two factions here in Georgia. You had a national faction called the um, Invisible Empire, and it was basically the old line Klan, uh, you know, and had a much el older demographic. And then you had a younger crew that was much more militant in the sense that they were very, they, they basically carried themselves as paramilitaries. They didn't wear robes. They wore camouflage fatigues. They were called the Southern White Knights, and they were led by a fellow named Dave Holland. And they were very much straight-up neo-Nazi in their whole approach. When I attended my first Klan rally, national Klan rally, at Stone Mountain on the property of the old Grand Dragon, uh, James Venable, on his property out there, uh, the Southern White Knights were pretty much in ascendant at that rally at that time, and people were shouting out, 8-8, eight, eight, 
And I'm going, what the heck is this 8-8 business? And that wasn't until later on when I was being debriefed at the uh, CDR office that I found out that 8-8 would refer to the eighth letter of the alphabet, which is H. And that means H-H for Heil Hitler. And, of course, that was a bit eye-opening. And then there were the shouts of white revolution. You know, sprinkling white power didn't surprise me, but white revolution did surprise me. Also, what surprised me to a degree was the, how, how many of the speakers of this rally got up and denounced the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and described them as the enemy. It was quite an eye-opening experience. Quite shook me a little bit, too. One of the more bizarre features to it, uh, just to give you an idea of just how different what was going on there was from the usual picture of the Klan that most people have, uh, at the old rally site, they even had a concession stand set up, and they were selling hot dogs. And People were lined up to get their hot dogs from the concession stand. And I kept hearing every guy who went up to the concession stand to get a hot dog say, are those all beef hot dogs? And I'm like, why are they worried about them being all beef hot dogs? The first thing that popped into my head, but it didn't make any sense, was that they were worried about eating pork. And But, I mean, why would a Klansman or, you know, worry about eating kosher. Well, come to find out when I got back to my debriefing, that's exactly what they were concerned about, because this was a time at which the whole you know, idea of the religious doctrine of Christian identity was getting a, a great deal of play in the movement. And that, of course, preached that the white people uh, of Europe somehow or another, were the true lost tribes of Israel. And they were the true Jews. And that, you know, the Jews of Israel or the Jews that we are familiar with today aren't real Jews at all. They're pretenders, you know. So it's actually the white race, which is the chosen people. Uh, Very convenient that. These folks were just out-and-out Nazis. I thought I knew all about white racism in the South. I grew up here. I was born the year of the uh, Little Rock riots. I thought I knew about bigotry, but I was simply not prepared for out-and-out Nazism. There's actually, which you pointed out to me, a long history of Nazi sympathy in the state of Georgia and specifically in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. If you want to talk about the history of it, uh, which I did not know when I began, if I had known the history, I wouldn't have been quite so shocked. Uh, It was only through this work and through all the research I was going to do in the years to come that I became aware of the fact that the earliest known post-World War II or uh, organized Nazi faction in the United States of America was organized in Atlanta, Georgia in 1946. It was a group called the Columbians. They were in competition with the Ku Klux Klan, uh, and uh, they were engaged in uh, attempts to bomb houses uh, in white neighborhoods that black people might have purchased. They were engaged in all kinds of violent rhetoric, but they were just out-and-out Nazis. And two of the key players uh, on the white supremacist scene in Georgia came out of their orbit. One was J.B. Stoner, and the other was Dr. Edward R. Fields. He styled himself Dr. Edward Fields because 
He was a chiropractor, not because he was a medical doctor of any kind, but he went on to become a big player uh, in the uh, white supremacist movement here in Georgia by publishing the longest-running uh, racist, anti-Semitic, neo-Nazi tabloid in uh, the country's history. Uh, it started out as the um, organ of the National States Rights Party, which he co-founded with J.B. Stoner. Uh, at that time, it was called the Thunderbolt, which was taken directly from the symbol of the Colombians. That was their symbol, the Thunderbolt. And later on, after the National States Rights Party uh, went belly up, Fields continued to control the newspaper and changed the title to The Truth at Last and kept publishing it for the next 30, 40 years. Um, in that capacity, he also played a major role as an international connection for the white supremacist movement here in Georgia. What was different about it in the mid-80s that you noticed at these rallies in, in Atlanta? Well, for one thing, uh, the rallies very often were organized by the Nazi element. Um, the, the Southern White Knights played a key role in most of the high-profile stuff that happened in the 80s uh, in Georgia. They were a key player and organizer of the, the mob that attacked the uh, civil rights marchers in uh, Forsyth County up in Cumming, Georgia, uh, at what was known as the Brotherhood March. They were key players in that. They were key players in organizing the crowds of pro-Klan people uh, two, three weeks later at the Second Brotherhood March, which drew 10,000 uh, civil rights marchers, but also, uh, unreported by the media, drew several thousand white supremacist supporters and Klan supporters, again, primarily organized by the Southern White Knights. They were also engaged in between in organizing rallies around the state to benefit from the publicity of the first mob action that they were involved in in Forsyth. Um, I know this because I attended one of their rallies in Winder, Georgia, uh, in between the First Brotherhood March and the Second Brotherhood March, where I had the occasion to eat lunch with J.B. Stoner uh, <laughs> at the Wendy's. They wouldn't eat at McDonald's because McDonald's had given some money to, uh, uh, to some civil rights organization, to the Rainbow Push Coalition, so they, they wouldn't eat at McDonald's. Uh, and that was quite an experience sitting, you know, sitting at the table with this fellow who is one of the most poisonous individuals I think I have ever run across in my life. And I run across a few poisonous individuals, but J.B. Stoner is the top of the list. They had a rally in downtown Winder, if downtown isn't too highfalutin a term for Winder. Uh, and then later on, they had a rally and cross lighting in Bethlehem, Georgia. And the significance of the Bethlehem rally was that it was, though it involved the Invisible Empire, much like the Forsyth County uh, action, it was quite clear that the dominant partner in organizing this event was the Southern White Knights, which, of course, uh, was the organization that had a younger demographic and was also clearly clearly Nazi in its orientation. I mean, these people were in favor of the Breuderschweigen, the uh, Silent Brotherhood, the, you know, the Order, the white supremacist neo-Nazi terrorist group that was active in this country. And um, so you, you had a really extreme faction coming to the fore. Yet at this point, we were still talking within the framework 
of the old clan and people like J.B. Stoner, who had been around since the 40s, who, who represented the, the long-term influence of this Nazi ideology on the traditional white supremacy of the Klan. What emerged in the late 80s in Atlanta and on a national level was far more disturbing in its way because what we had was the emergence of a new sort of neo-Nazi movement that wasn't rooted in the old Klan areas or in the old Klan-dominated communities, but rather rooted itself in the youth culture of the music scene within the cities and urban areas, and consequently had much further reach socially and ideologically than the Klan or any of its adherents, no matter how they attempted to remake themselves, could ever have. Uh, And this was extremely disturbing. It was alarming because uh, we began to see violent attacks in the city uh, on, you know, people, uh, young people being beaten, brutalized, intimidated. Uh, and this, and, 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 and this was going completely under the radar for the most part. Um, you simply didn't have an awareness of what was going on outside of the scene itself. And there were a lot of reasons for that. But of course, when we became aware of this as Neighbors Network, we, our first concern was to address this. And of course, to address it, we had to learn about it. And naturally, one of the things we were very interested in finding out was whether there were linkages between this development and the white supremacist movement as it had already existed in the state of Georgia. Now, of course, the temptation would be to say, of course, of course, there there must be linkages. There have to be linkages. Well, yes, but, you know, you can't just work off of intuition. You have to have hard data, hard facts. So we spent a great deal of time researching it, and unsurprisingly, we found out that there were direct links. And the direct links between the Klan and white supremacist elements in the state, the key figure unsurprisingly, was none other than Edward R. Fields, because he was the man who had the international connections to begin with. He was the man who had promoted the uh, writings of Oswald Mosley, who had organized the British Union of Fascists in the 1930s and who had been imprisoned in Britain all throughout World War II, but came out after the war and continued to operate as a fascist politician in Britain. Uh, Doc Fields promoted his writings. Uh, Doc Fields also had direct connections with a man named John Tyndall in the United Kingdom who ran an organization, a Nazi organization, called the British National Party. And the British National Party was famous for developing linkages with the emergent Nazi skinhead movement in Britain. And it was pretty obvious that what was going on was that Doc was seen as a link to the taproot of Nazi skinheadism in Britain. And consequently, you had all these uh, young people who were being recruited into this Nazi skinhead ideology coming to Doc for leadership of one sort or another. And he was plugging them into all of these existing 
you know, Nazi and racist networks, both uh, nationally and internationally. He was connected also in passing with David Irving, the noted Holocaust denier who sued Professor Deborah Lipstadt of Emory University for libel and lost in a British court. This, This came about because... Ed was involved uh, with Sam Dixon in sponsoring speaking engagements and speaking tours by David Irving uh, over a number of years. And in fact, at one time, uh, Irving and Fields collaborated on a speaking tour. Not a very large speaking tour, but several cities. Um, and this was significant because Fields was constantly promoting Irving, even before it became widely understood that David Irving was a Holocaust revisionist slash denier. So we're not talking about people who were entirely fringe. We're talking about people who managed, in spite of everything, to have an impact on public thought and uh, debate about some pretty serious topics. Although, you know, after the failure of his libel suit against Deborah Lipstadt, David Irving is pretty much discredited anywhere outside of the right-wing fringe. But it's important to realize that none of this was known at the time. None of these connections were known widely at the time. And it was only through a lot of our own work that we were able to publicize them to a degree. So you see, you have all these connections which people are simply not aware of. People had no idea that Atlanta, Georgia, or more specifically Marietta, Georgia, was an an international nexus for the white supremacist neo-Nazi movement, but it was. And that was primarily down to the work of Edward R. Fields. I think a lot of folks will be surprised to learn that Atlanta functioned as a crossroads for uh, national and international hate groups at this time. But it's easy to see why y'all founded an organization to counter this type of activity. Can you tell me a little bit about Neighbors Network? It was basically a half a dozen of us who had previously worked with the Center for Democratic Renewal, uh, which had dropped its uh, counter-organizing or its, uh, you know, community organizing uh, aspect. You know, we got together because we believed in that aspect of the early CDRs program, and we were desirous of continuing it independently on a local level. And that's what we did. We basically had a, three, uh, a three-pronged approach, which was research, victim's assistance, and counter-organizing. Now, these were all interconnected because you do research for one particular reason, and that is that early on, particularly with the Klan, but also to an extent with the Nazi skinheads, we understood that a great deal of their strength came out of anonymity. If you do not know who they are, you can't really do anything much about their depredations. You can't, you know, it's fine to say, well, these are, as people often did to us that said, well, these are crimes and law enforcement should take care of them. Well, that's fine and dandy, except if you don't know who these people are, how can law enforcement take care of anything? And that was something, and this, of course, 
in the in the case of the Klan, it was an overt strategy by the Klan. That's why they wore the hoods to make sure that nobody could finger anybody for any of their criminal or terroristic behavior. Well, a similar dynamic applied to the neo-Nazi skinheads because very often they wouldn't use their full names, or if they used names at all, they were nicknames. They were known under certain names on the scene, but nobody knew where they lived because they didn't come from the city. They actually were coming in from outside of the city. Uh, and essentially raiding into the youth scene in the city and attempting to intimidate and terrorize people. So it became quite obvious that the first thing that we needed to do was to identify as many of these players as we possibly could. Now, I want to stress, we're not talking about invading anybody's privacy. We're not talking about anything other than identifying people who are publicly associating themselves with existing white supremacist neo-Nazi organizations and movements. You know, to be perfectly frank, the only reason we were doing it was in order to inhibit their violence and terrorism, because we knew that if they could be identified, they were far less likely to do anything that would wind them up in jail. Uh, Although, in order to to make that stick, we had to help put a few of them in jail, <laughs> you know, for which I do not apologize in the slightest. Uh, I know some people have a problem with that, but as far as I'm concerned, if people are going to commit ter- terrorism and violence, jail is a good place for them. <laughs> They'll learn about it there. I want to talk um, for a moment about the research that Neighbors Network did. Uh, Part of this research was attending and photographing public hate group rallies. In the collection, there are several photo albums from these types of events. Um, In particular, I'm thinking about an album from a rally in Pulaski, Tennessee. Uh, The album has photographs of the hate groups on the courthouse steps. Um, It also has photographs of them marching around the courthouse square. And then, this is really what caught my eye, um, there's photos of the folks who are standing on the periphery of the event. Um, And in particular, there's, uh, in one of these off-to-the-side photos, there is, for example, uh, Richard Butler of Aryan Nation from Idaho. What is Richard Butler of Aryan Nation in Idaho doing in Pulaski, Tennessee? Like Stone Mountain, the Pulaski rally was a national gathering together, you know. Uh, And, of course, Pulaski, Tennessee is a little more centrally located than Stone Mountain, Georgia. But, you know, they both would attract, uh, you know, national players. In fact, it was not an accident that the first two major infiltrations I did for uh, the Center for Democratic Renewal. The first was at Stone Mountain, and the second was in Pulaski, Tennessee. And it was in Pulaski, Tennessee, that I made the acquaintance of people like Pastor Bob Miles, and as you say, Richard Butler was there. Edward R. Fields would show up in Pulaski, Tennessee as well, uh, along with uh, oh numerous other Klan leaders from across the country. Uh, and it was, a, um, it was quite an experience to go to Pulaski, because that's where I also met people who were who are ostensibly were members of the Aryan Brotherhood. Uh, at least they said they were, and they'd spent time in the Atlanta penitentiary. So, uh, you know, I take them at their word. It was, uh, 
that Pulaski was a pretty intense experience. Uh, and that's where, you know, the, 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 it was reinforced to me just how much the Nazi ideology had taken hold. Uh, I remember going there and pretty much everything was closed down on the square except for this one little lunch counter. I went in there to get something to eat, sat down next to this fellow. We started chatting each other up. He was there for the rally. And he proceeded to explain to me that the real problem in this country wasn't the black folks. The real problem in this country was the Jews. So I pretty much knew where he was coming from. Um, And these are things, see, these are things that people really, they think they understand the white supremacist movement. They think they understand what these people are all about. But they're really just operating off of stereotypes presented to them by the media. Um, And, you know, I understand nobody particularly wants to deal with this ugliness, but you really can't fight anything effectively if you don't understand it. Uh, And you really, your hands are tied if you're dealing dealing from a stereotypical standpoint. The thing you've got to recognize is however warped or twisted some of these individuals are, they are in fact human beings. And what they're doing is comprehensible if you understand the premises that they're operating from. And that's that's very key to fighting them. You can't fight them effectively if you don't understand them on that level. Or at least that's my opinion. <laughs> you know, so why did you create the symbol sheets? <laughs> because people didn't know. I know it's hard to believe now in this day and age, but when we started out, nobody had put together anything like a, you know, a, a, a flyer, that would identify the various white supremacist symbols that were being used. I mean, kids were going around flashing these things on their clothes, uh, and, and, and no one knew. No one knew. No one knew that these were white supremacist emblems. Uh, so we basically, I, I have a little bit of drawing talent. I'm not a great graphics artist, but I basically sat down and drew up a representation of all of these symbols for one long legal size sheet. We printed it and published it and distributed it. And it was very useful. It, well, it was very difficult to get suburban parents to believe you when you told them that their kids were being recruited into a Nazi organization at the food court of the local mall. But if you showed them a sheet with these symbols on it and they recognized the symbols as something their kids were playing around with, that helped a lot. That helped a lot. And really, I don't blame them for, you know, being skeptical when, when we had to approach them about this stuff, because there was absolutely nothing out there in the media at all to give them an idea of the reach of this movement or how pernicious and widespread it was. And, and, and there were very few groups that were trying to educate people on the ground. So this is why we did the symbol sheet. This is why we did a lot of our just basic educational stuff. And this was before the internet had really taken off, too. So we were we were back in the day of you know, print it up, mail it out, hand it out, you know. Um, but I think we were pretty effective, uh, at least judging from the reaction of the opposition. We must have been because they hated our guts. Another aspect of about Neighbors Network I want to talk with you about is victims' assistance because you've kind of mentioned it, but. Um these were really violent folks and uh, like real, real tangible acts of violence. And um, what, what did Neighbors Network do to help um, with victims of these kinds of hate crimes? 
Well, you know, when we were on the spot, which was on occasion back in the bad old days in Little Five Points, we used to do foot patrols in Little Five Points. And by that, I don't mean that we went around ready to kick people's butts. Uh, What we did is we went around and kept an eye on things. And if there was a problem... We'd call in the local the local cops. We'd we'd mediate between people and the police in order to make sure that the folks who were committing crimes were the, the right folks, not the wrong folks. The people who actually were doing the crime would actually get the attention that they deserved. And there were a couple of occasions where we were able to apply first aid. Uh, which was necessary on more than one occasion, and also to make sure that the people who committed the crime were apprehended and basically had to pay the piper. Uh, we also did, a, you know, we did things like flyering and postering and putting up posters with our number on it and everything, and you know, telling people if you, you know, call us and report report it if you've been attacked or assaulted. We were not operating as an arm of the police. Our role was to mediate on behalf of members of the community with the police forces because there was a distinct lack of trust there. And, you know, we consequently had to be very careful in our dealings to make sure that we had the credibility necessary to perform that mediating function. And I think we did right well with that, you know. None of our people ever got arrested. <laughs> you know, none of our people ever none of our people ever ended up on the wrong side of uh, of the of the situation. I'm I'm very pleased to say. Uh so we must have done something right. Um but it was it was victims assistance was, you know, direct. We also outside of the realm of working on the issue of Nazi skinheads when it came to Klan activity and hate crimes outside the city. We also did things like sit up nights and make sure that families could get some sleep because they they were under threat of night riders. Uh, Yes, such things still occurred and they still occur today. If you, you know, I know people don't like to think that that still goes on, but it does. Um, you know, we essentially did whatever we could to try and give support to people because, you know, it's simply not possible for, you know, the police to do everything that would be necessary in a situation like that. I mean, regardless of whether they wanted to or not, the fact is that the police can't be there 24-7. Just like the police can't spend their time going around trying to identify members of these groups 24/7. So we were there to do it for them. <laughs> you know? We were there we were there to make sure it was done. Speaking of kind of outside the city, that this that's a good transition to um it's another aspect of the research that Neighbors Network did because y'all produced a annual report called Hate in Georgia that actually documented the hate crimes that you knew about. And I assume that there had never mm-hmm. been anything like that uh, before y'all start, started doing it. Not that I'm aware of on a regular basis, no. Uh, naturally, naturally, back in the 30s, there were things like the uh, Methodist Women's uh, Anti-Lynching Organization, uh, and they, of course, kept up with incidents of lynching. Uh, and, of course, there was... Uh, uh, Miss Bethune's anti-lynching movement, 
uh, which did the same thing, and organizations like the NAACP, but nothing specifically devoted to tracking the white supremacist uh, neo-Nazi movement and their criminality on an annual basis. Uh, we also put out a weekly bulletin for a while in order to keep you know local leaders in the civil rights movement and uh, in law enforcement up to date as well. We, uh, in fact, the late great uh, Reverend James Orange once uh, told me that he liked to brag on us to other people so that they he'd say, the reason I know what's going on with the Klan is because of Neighbors Network. And that made me proud, quite proud, pleased as punch, as you might say, you know. Uh, so it was, it, you know, it's some of the most rewarding work I've ever done. Uh, and I only wish, I only wish that we could have built on that work. But one of the one of you know the the law of unintended consequences comes into play because we made it so uncomfortable and so difficult for these groups to actually actively organize in Georgia that they began to accelerate their moves to infiltrate and basically go into the conservative movement, which, of course, translated into going into the GOP uh, on the state level. All the way across the spectrum, you had people who were constantly minimizing and even denying the necessity of the work we were doing, denying the danger. Uh, we were, you, you'd repeatedly hear things like, oh, no, 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 don't pay attention to them. That's what they want. Don't give them any attention. Ignore them and they'll go away. Well, I don't know whenever ignoring them, a problem has made it go away. I, I don't, you know, I couldn't believe that grown adults were actually staring me in the face and telling me ignore them and they'll go away. When has that ever worked for anything? But nevertheless, this was wishful thinking. And I mean, you, you see it even today. You see, you see uh, in our current polarized atmosphere, you'll see people completely refusing to recognize that, look, we're not dealing with some kind of demoniacal force here. This is something that human societies and human beings are prone to. You look back at history, you can study it, you can analyze it, you can understand it. And that means you can fight it. You can fight it effectively. One thing we haven't touched on here is how much of our work was devoted to recovering people from these groups. We actually recovered people from these groups. We pulled people out of the Nazi skinheads. We pulled them out of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, you know, I don't want to say it was easy. I don't want to say that we waved a wand and it was done. But it is possible. We are dealing with people. They may be screwed up people. They may be desperately led astray, but they remain human beings. And if we don't keep that in the forefront of our thinking at all times, we're not going to beat them. <laughs> you are not, if you treat people like they are not human beings, you are not going to win against them. You, you know, because what's the difference, right? What's the difference? They say, I'm a subhuman. I say they're a subhuman. What's the difference? So, Walter, um, you mentioned history, and so I think this is another good chance to bring the Neighbors Network records back into it. So, 
what does it mean to you that this work that y'all did as a group is now in a repository, in a place where it can be shared with other people, where anyone can come in and look at it? What does it mean to have these records at the Rose Library? It is, it is the fulfillment of my fondest hope and dream, and I think fondest hope and dream of most of the people involved. I know that it was very much, it, gave, it, it really gave Janet Caldwell, who was a key inspirer uh, of Neighbors Network, a real, a, a real sense of gratification that this work that we did would go on contributing to the struggle for democracy, and against fascism, long after we are gone, it will be there as a resource for coming generations. It already is, and I am just as delighted as I can be because it's, you know, for us, when we started out, it was well nigh impossible to get some of the information of the early, earlier generations. Uh, I remember doing, trying to do research on the Colombians uh, back in the day, and there was, it, you couldn't find anything about them back in the day. You didn't go and dig it up by hand in the archives of a library somewhere. or go, you know, If you wanted to find out about the Colombians' activities here in Georgia, you had to go down to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution office and go through their, you know, their archives down there to find old news articles about it. it, it it's just a great thing to realize that all all these people who none of us were particularly exceptional, you know, uh, we just felt very strongly about this work. Um, we came together, we did this work, we amassed this material, and now we know that it will continue to contribute going forward and that our contribution will continue long after we're gone. And I don't know how, I don't know what else you can hope for. <laughs> I think that's the greatest thing in the world. It's always a principle with us that, you know, information should not be hoarded and dolloped out for advantage or, you know, whether, you know, whether in pursuit of a, a political agenda or organizational agenda or a personal agenda. Um, and this, you know, we, we felt that information was there to be disseminated because information was power. The whole point was to raise the alarm. The whole point was to give people the tools necessary to be effective in fighting this kind of poison. Um, and let's, let's, let's not kid around about it. We're talking about fascism. We're talking about Nazism. We're talking about racism. This is a poison. It has never gone away. It is there, and all that it is required for it to surge to the surface is for people to drop their guard and to refuse to confront it early on. So, so, and you can't confront something effectively if you don't understand what it is and the parameters of it. So our primary goal was to inform people. This was about doing the necessary work to inform people of what was going on and to give them the tools they needed to make a real effective fight back against these developments. Yes, the, you know, people talk about Antifa. Uh, well, Antifa just means anti-fascist. And that means I was Antifa because Antifa, before Antifa was cool. 
You know, so I, I, I and, and so were other people in the group, you know, people like Patrick Kelly, who's passed on from us now, sad to say, and Janet Caldwell, who was a, a chief inspiration uh, in, in Force and Neighbors Network. These people were all Antifa. Uh, my father's generation, which fought in World War II in the war against fascism, were Antifa. And I know what side I'm on. I'm on the side of my father's generation. They may not have always lived up to, you know, the promise of democracy here at home, but they went out and laid their lives down to defeat fascism on the world scale. And that's the America that I believe in, and that's the America that I celebrate and support. Walter, thank you very much for being with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Happy to do it. Elaine Intersections is produced by Randy Yu and Nick Twelmlo. Jacob Chisholm is our editor and the legendary band with no name featuring Jimmy Deemer and James Joyce created and performed our theme music. We're grateful for the support of our colleagues at the Rose Library, especially Lolita Rowe, community outreach archivist, Jennifer Gunter King, director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to the Todd Still Death Crew, Joe Strummer, Etta James, Otis Redding, and Crass for inspiration. Join us next month for Episode 3 of Atlanta Intersections. For more information about the Rose Library and our other podcast series, please visit us on the web at rose.library.emory.edu and follow the Rose Library on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find all the Rose Library's podcasts on all your favorite podcast feeds. 